I read an article this week that was describing the key component of a gripping story. Essentially answering the question, what causes a movie or TV show to engage us, moving our emotions? Here's the essence of their conclusion. Longing is at the heart of every good story. Characters long for someone or something that lies beyond their reach. Maybe it's a new love or a better life or, or just an idea. It's the character's longings that drive the story and that pulls us along with them. That's really true, isn't it? That article went on to say that longing plays out differently on television, where the, it's the lack of resolution that spurs us on to keep watching. A TV character might long for something or someone over the course of an entire series. There may be immediate desires that change from season to season, but it's the character's overall yearning that keeps us invested in the show. Now, because longing is at the heart of every good story, I don't think we can truly appreciate the power of this scene from Luke 4 without first considering the way the people of God had longed for centuries for the coming of the anointed one. That is, the glorious arrival of the prophesied Messiah. So as you personally seek to engage with today's passage, I encourage you to think about the deepest yearning of your heart. For what does your heart most long? For the people of God. Their deepest longing was that Messiah, the one promised so long ago, would finally come. He would finally come to deliver them from oppression and from poverty and from all of their pain. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 22. Recall that Jesus has just defeated the devil in the wilderness, which brings us to our passage. Here then, the inerrant, infallible, and life-giving word of God. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's? Son, so Lord, would you lead us now by your spirit so that we might see the glory, the true glory, as it was supposed of Joseph's son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. This morning we have the joy of celebrating communion together. But let's think for a moment about how jarring the imagery of this table actually is. We as the people of God believe that the bread and the, and the fruit of the vine sitting on this table symbolizes or represents the scourged and crucified body and blood of an innocent person who lived 2,000 years ago. We believe this person willingly, voluntarily offered his life, body and soul, as a physical human sacrifice of substitutionary atonement so that the righteous wrath of God against our sin would be diverted from us and placed Onto him. We believe that this innocent man exchanged his life for ours so that our sin could be forgiven, so that this person's innocence and righteousness could be given to us, so that we would have peace with God, so that we might receive the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit so that we might live freely and joyfully in the presence of God forever. And we believe the person who made this sacrifice on our behalf was the Son of God himself. The son of God who came to earth as a man to redeem us from our bondage to sin and to restore the creation that he made. So, 
wherever you find yourself as you sit here this morning. Joyful. Broken. Curious. Confused. Dry. Allow yourself to be jarred by the actual gospel. The good news about the person and work of Jesus is a shocking reality. But it is great news. It is good news of great joy for all who believe. Now this scene from the synagogue in Nazareth not only announces the arrival of Israel's long-awaited Messiah, it reveals the one whose sacrifice we are celebrating today. We're celebrating his sacrifice as the Savior of the world, the one and only mediator between God and man. The only way to the Father, the sacrifice of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's tighten up what I said just a little bit and use that as our main point this morning. This scene here in Luke 4 announces the arrival of Israel's Messiah and it reveals the one who is Savior of the world. This scene announces the arrival of Israel's Messiah and reveals the one who is savior of the world. Now, this this scene really has two, two crucial components. The positive reaction to Jesus in verses 14 through 22, which we'll cover this morning, and the negative reaction to Jesus in the second part of the scene that goes to the end of verse 30, and we'll cover that next week. The key, though, is for us to see that the positive and the negative reactions together prove that Jesus was not only announcing himself as Israel's Messiah, but also revealing himself to be the Savior of the whole world. So this morning, we'll look at the coming of the Messiah, verses 14 and 15, the message from the Messiah, verses 16 through 21, and the response, at least the initial response to the Messiah in verse 22. If you're a note taker, we'll just leave this up for the rest of the way so you can kind of budget how much space you may need as we move along. We'll just begin with our first section. The running joke among Christian kids with respect to Bible questions in Sunday school is what? (laughs) Every answer to any question the teacher may ask is probably Jesus. But the reason is because Jesus is the focus of everything that we do as believers. And he is the focus of all of the scriptures ultimately in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. All of our teaching and all of our encouragement and all of our hope is ultimately found and focused upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, what do you think Jewish kids 
or siblings, what do you think they used to say to each other during the time of the Old Testament when the teachers or their parents would ask them questions about the law and the prophets? The older kids would probably whisper to the younger kids, if you don't know the answer, it's probably Messiah. That's usually right. The reason is because all of their focus was upon him and his coming. We get discouraged as Christian adults or young people or even children. When we do, we usually encourage one another by reminding each other what Jesus has done for us. Well, how do you think? the people of God in the Old Testament typically encourage one another. Hey, sister, I know you're discouraged because food is so scarce these days because of our oppressors, but Messiah is coming. He will deliver us. Hey, brother, I heard you got double taxed the other day at the, the market. And I know that is frustrating. But remember, God has promised Messiah is coming. He will deliver us. In other words, all of the hope of the people of God in the Old Testament was, was fixed, was focused on a singular promise. One day, Messiah would come and Messiah would crush Israel's oppressors and usher in a time of great peace and prosperity for the people of God. And oh, how the people of God longed for that day. So then, imagine the curiosity Imagine the curiosity and the excitement that was generated in in the region as people heard the reports about a young miracle worker. A young miracle worker and teacher in the region of Galilee who was glorified by all as he taught in the synagogues, verses 14 and 15. And then... Imagine the conversation around Nazareth itself. When the locals find out, the miracle worker is Joseph's son, Jesus, the carpenter. I mean, Jesus is a nice kid. My kids played with him when he was little. A box in my house that he made for me. But what's happening around this area is undoubtedly a work of God. Just think about the questions that would come into your mind. This this is nothing less than the hand of God. Where did Jesus get this kind of power? It sounds very much like the work of a prophet. Perhaps even, dare I say, 
This work is messianic in nature? Jesus? How can this possibly be? Maybe you've experienced a similar kind of way of processing in your own life. When God worked in a way that did not fit your expectations at all. Maybe you have a lot going on in your life. Maybe you can see the evidence of God at work, but things aren't exactly going in the way that you hoped that they would go. I'm looking at all these families from California and thinking, did you expect to live in Tennessee not too long ago? <laughs> no. Sometimes it seems like God is, is, is really providing great opportunities. Maybe you just sense God's pleasure or blessing upon you and evangelism as you go to talk to your neighbors. Normally you're kind of reticent to do that and all of a sudden you feel bold and there seems to be positive responsiveness there. Maybe God's blessing your efforts at work. He's providing for your needs in ways that could not be attributed to anything else but God himself. And then all of a sudden everything goes sideways. Right? The wheels just fall off. And you think, Lord, what are you doing? When I first became an elder in Illinois at the church where we were, I was a relatively, <laughs> relatively young man. And I thought, this will be really good. Because there were many older godly men at the church. And I thought, I'm just going to kind of ease my way into things. I'm just going just gonna to listen to these men and sit at their feet and grow in wisdom. And day one, meeting one, minute one, a conflict blew up. And one of the men who had been sitting as an elder looked at me and said, Welcome to baptism by fire. <laughs> that was not at all the way that I expected God to be at work. Sometimes it seems like there's, there's no good way forward in a situation. But then God provides a way. And then you think, this is great. But then all of a sudden, God provides two or three other opportunities, and then you say, all right, now I'm not really sure what to do. Though God always fulfills his promises, sometimes the way he keeps his promises can leave us surprised or bewildered. God eventually equipped me as an elder, but it was not at all in the way that I thought that he was going to do that. So my encouragement to you, if, if, if you aren't sure what God's doing in your life, is to keep asking him to lead you in the path of righteousness. Keep asking him to help you remain faithful to him by the power of the Spirit as you trust in Jesus. 
and keep trusting that he knows far better than you do what is ultimately best for you from an eternal perspective. Even if we don't fully understand what God is doing in our lives, we can trust in what we do know about him as revealed in his word, and we can trust in his character. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Psalm 145 and verse 17. Now, a fairly significant amount of time has passed between Jesus' defeat of the devil in the wilderness and the time that he arrives to the synagogue in Nazareth. Mark does not record this event until chapter 6 of his comparatively short gospel. Matthew, Matthew does not cover this scene until chapter 13. So the question arises in our minds, why did Luke put it here? The reason Luke moves this scene to the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus is because Luke likes to organize his gospel, the main events of his gospel, thematically. Much like he wanted us to connect Adam to Jesus at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. Here Luke wants to be sure. He wants us to be absolutely sure that we see the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry to the very end of his ministry as the fulfillment of prophecy, specifically from Isaiah. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, so see, he already has a custom. <laughs> Some time has passed here. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can practically taste the curiosity and the expectation in that room. The hometown hero who's doing all of these miracles and teaching in such a way that he is glorified by all. He has come home to the synagogue in the small town where he grew up. His recently found reputation has preceded him in this moment. Every eye is fixed upon him as he sits down. And the way we should think about this is 
not like when Cam was reading earlier and he, he stepped up to read and then he, then he took his seat among the congregation. It's more like Jesus read the scroll and then walked up to the pulpit to preach. The scholars would sit down in the place of authority to teach those who were gathered for that day. Jesus opens his mouth and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. At the very launching point of Jesus' ministry, Luke wants to confront us directly with the claims of Jesus. Luke figuratively drops us into the front row of the synagogue among the people of Nazareth. Dale Ralph Davis notes that though the liturgy of the service was largely preset, most scholars agree that the person expositing the word in the synagogue, in this case Jesus, usually had the flexibility to select a text from the prophets to read and to expound. Therefore, it's likely Jesus deliberately selected this specific text from the opening of chapter 61 of the prophet Isaiah. So then, what is it that Jesus wanted his hearers to understand about him? As those present would have understood, the context for Isaiah 61 begins at least back in chapter 59, where Israel's sins are just laid out. But that chapter closes with the promise that a redeemer will come to Zion. Through Isaiah, God has already promised that his spirit would be upon his messianic king. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And God has already promised that his spirit would be upon his suffering servant. Chapter 42 and verse 1. Now, Isaiah chapters 60 through 62 outline the restoration and the future glory of Israel. But right in the middle of this prophecy, unexpectedly, a person suddenly starts speaking in the first person in the very opening verses of Isaiah 61. In context, this is the royal servant, prophet, messianic figure Isaiah has been referencing who has been sanctioned by Yahweh to proclaim his word. So, here in the synagogue of Nazareth, this local boy turned miracle worker is claiming that God's spirit is upon him. Remember verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus is claiming that Yahweh himself is sanctioning him to announce that the prophecies of Isaiah are now realized in this moment in his person through his ministry. In other words, God's long-awaited Messiah, 
David's greater son, the suffering servant loved by Yahweh, Israel's deliverer, deliverer has finally come. Imagine what this could have looked like in the context here. Imagine Jesus, the carpenter, standing up and saying this to the people who knew him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He, Yahweh, has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This scene is vintage Jesus. You may become flustered by him. You may sometimes be frustrated by him, but you cannot ignore his claims. The message from the Messiah is just filled with good news. It is a message that cuts to the heart of our spiritual condition. For those who are poor in spirit, the message is hope has arrived. Hope has arrived in my person and through my ministry. Hope has arrived for though you think you have nothing, you are now being offered an entire kingdom. For those who are held captive by Satan, the phrase captive technically means prisoner of war here. For those who are held Captive by Satan and for those enslaved by sin, deliverance from the devil, freedom from sin, and the powerful beauty of unstained righteousness can now be yours. For the spiritually blind, by the Spirit, your eyes can be can be opened. Jesus is saying, Look, some of you have seen me open the eyes of the physically blinded. You were there. Two towns over, when I open the eyes of a blind man, what I'm saying to you is an even greater work is now available to you. The eyes of your heart can be opened to behold the greatness of the glory of God so you can worship him in spirit and in truth, for you will see him as he is. And for those who are oppressed, that is, broken in pieces, shattered, you are being offered the freedom that comes from being delivered from oppression, and you now have the opportunity to be put back together, to be whole through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. My question for you As the people of God, my beloved brothers and sisters, the saints of River Oaks, is do you know that this is true for you this very morning? If you are a believer in Jesus, 
no matter how poor in spirit you may feel as you sit here this morning, I say to you, rejoice. Because the unimaginable wealth of a kingdom and the king of this glorious kingdom is your inheritance. If your circumstances are hard right now, let them serve by way of contrast to encourage you with the reality of all that is now and forever will be yours because of Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, time out, understatement of forever. <laughs> he not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills. He owns the nation upon which those hills sit because he owns the continent, because he owns the globe, because he owns the solar system, because he owns the galaxy, because he made the universe, and it all belongs to him. In other words, Jesus was rich. For you know, you know, Hear the word of God to you this morning. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He is sharing it all with you because his father shared it all with him. If you are a believer in Jesus, no matter how enslaved you may feel, possibly even to Satan, as you sit here this morning, that is exactly how you might feel. Rejoice, and I will say it again, <laughs> rejoice, because the reality of your situation is that the steel door of your prison cell has not only been unlocked by Jesus, but the door has been ripped off its hinges, it's been melted down and thrown into the sea. And Jesus has walked you out by the hand, because you now belong to him. Jesus put the warden of the prison to open shame by triumphing over him on Calvary. Jesus won the decisive battle of the war on the cross and freed all of the POWs, including us. Your reality, your reality is that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son through your faith in him. This is true for you now, and this will be true for you forever. If you are a believer in Jesus, the eyes of your heart have been opened to behold wondrous things from God's law. If you can't see now, as a believer in Jesus, it's not because you're blind. You're either looking in the wrong direction, or something is obstructing your view. But your reality 
your reality now is that the veil has been lifted. And you can now see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is, in the radiant face of our beloved Savior. If you are a believer in Jesus, though your spirit may be shattered, your heart may be broken in pieces, revel in the reality that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Therefore, you are whole. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So in Christ, you may be afflicted in every way, but because he's the head of all rule and authority, you will not be crushed. You may be perplexed, as Paul says, but not driven to despair. No matter who, no matter what, has brought you low, the Lord God Almighty is the lifter of your head. God sovereignly rules over every problem and God sovereignly rules over every person in this world and he sovereignly rules over every principality in the spiritual realm. God even sovereignly rules over your doubt about whether or not he can actually do something in your situation. And he sovereignly rules over your fear that he won't do something about your situation. Jesus is Lord. He will help you. These truths represent the good news that Jesus proclaimed right out of the text when he said, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in me, in your hearing. If you're not a believer in Jesus, there is good news of great joy for you because these truths can be true for you this very morning. I would say to you that behold the reality of what you're hearing. Therefore, you have an opportunity to believe these truths in faith. And I would offer a further warning to you. If you're hearing what I'm saying and sensing the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life, and you choose not to put your faith in Jesus, there will be a day when we, you and I, will be standing before the throne of God with every person in this room as a witness, and you will curse this day. 
because you chose to refuse the salvation offered to you in Jesus' name when it was clearly offered to you. So saints, pray even at this moment, if there's one person in this room who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes, remove their blindness, and help them to see the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ so that we might rejoice together on that day when we are gathered before your throne. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead on the authority of the word of God, I say to you, you will be saved. Because this scene right here not only announces the arrival of Israel's Messiah, it reveals that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But he is your only hope. No one else is coming. There is salvation found in no other name but this one. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. This is the good news of great joy for all who believe. And when he said these words, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So far, so good in this scene in the synagogue. If we stopped here, the heading in the Nazareth Times in the morning would be, Hometown Kid Makes Good. Local carpenter preaches encouraging message in the synagogue. As the people hear the good news about the ministry of the Messiah, even if they're just starting to connect the dots, initially they are deeply encouraged. In fact, they're in awe of what they're hearing. They marveled at their gracious words coming from Jesus. But the response of the people changed in an instant. And we'll press into that next week. For this week, as we turn our attention to the communion table, it would be good for us to consider our own response to the words of Jesus. We've already looked at the spiritual inheritance given to those who are poor in spirit, the freedom offered to prisoners of war, the the sight given to the spiritually blind, the wholeness offered to those whose lives have just been fragmented. These are all powerful realities of the good news of the gospel message. There's one more interesting detail from our passage, when Jesus was quoting from Isaiah, he chose to stop mid-verse, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, in essence, a spiritual year or spiritual era of jubilee, rather than finishing the way the verse finishes with these words, a day of vengeance of our God. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, 
I don't think Jesus was scared to tell the truth. I don't think he was fearful of telling people about the reality of hell and about the coming wrath of God. I think this is what he wanted to linger in the air of the synagogue. Freedom. The year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was proclaiming the Jubilee blessings of Leviticus 25, which included the cancellation of debt. So then, as we behold the communion table, realize that your full spiritual debt to God for your sin has been paid in full by the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus. Just to be clear, he has atoned for every one of your sins. Every last transgression has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, which is why we're celebrating that reality this morning. This is what David said in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Saints of River Oaks, those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, your sin is covered. How blessed are you? David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Or as Paul described it, Jesus canceled our record of debt and its legal demands, setting it aside by nailing it to the cross. So if we come full circle then, I guess much like movies, there's a sense in which our greatest need and our most desperate longings have now been fully satisfied in Christ. But on the other hand, much like the TV series, there's still a lack of complete resolution <laughs> to the reality of the, the recreating work that Jesus has begun. This dynamic is the already, but not yet, dimension of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has already come in Christ. All of these blessings belong to you now. But this kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. Therefore, we can now revel in the joy of all that Jesus has accomplished, yet we still long. We long with greater and greater intensity for the coming day when all things will be fully realized, a day when the majestic glory of our matchless God covers the new heaven and the new earth as the waters cover the sea. Brothers and sisters, let us long together for that day. On that day, we will have entered an unending era of jubilee by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father.